Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne. Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks, and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you, Hannah. Uh, yes, I'm Kamal Ahmed. I'm the BBC's uh, economics editor. Obviously, the Daily Mail, a big fan of the BBC, uh, and uh, we'll be going through. I, I, just, I just dug out before I arrived here um, this evening a few, a few of the headlines about the august organisation uh, that uh, I uh, work for. Um, over recent weeks, these have been some of the stories in the Daily Mail about, uh, about the BBC. Uh, BBC spends less than half of its cash on programmes, Critics demand inquiry into staggering waste, and it is, it is revealed that £230,000 a year of licence fee money was spent on tea. Uh, this was followed up by an unfortunate choice of headgear. See, a very good story, Roger. Singer Keris Matthews is blasted for presenting the BBC's one show, Item on Watership Down, while wearing a rabbit fur hat. Uh, <laughs> rabbits, uh, rabbits is the controversial word there, which is always usefully capped up by the Daily Mail to make sure people uh, are across what's uh, important. And then um, finally, finally on, on top gear, it's the BBC's new Dream PC lineup. New Top Gear host revealed, and the internet is quick to notice there's a black guy, a woman, and a foreigner, and of course, a ginger. So uh, that clearly, clearly pushed um, um, who we chose for uh, Top Gear. But, and this is often totally missed about the Daily Mail, the Daily Mail can also surprise, and often does. Uh, uh, we were all reading our Daily Mail today. Obviously, I have my copy uh, that I read every day. And uh, their final uh, little editorial, um, from which we took great heart, uh, reads uh, this. Uh, These are words you might not expect in the mail. But congratulations to the BBC. On its even-handed coverage of the referendum debate, brackets so far. Yes, it must be an effort for the corporation staff to suppress their prejudices and be fair to the Brexit camp. But six days into the campaign, they're doing a grand job. Let's see if they can keep it up for the next 17 weeks. So, it is often and clearly um, um, uh, rather caricature the Daily Mail in how it covers the world uh, around it. Uh, The Daily Mail makes uh, big and important arguments um, uh, that actually it is simply the chattering metropolitan classes, uh, probably most of them are sat here uh, today, uh, that dislike the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail speaks for a part of Britain that is often ignored by organisations the Daily Mail tends to dismiss as part of that elite. And we really want to get into that debate um, here. Uh, clearly, uh, the title of the debate, we are, or the motion we are arguing, is the trouble with this country is uh, the Daily Mail. Um, uh, we will hear from all our panellists, both for and against uh, this motion. And then... I hope this is not too complicated. I'm slightly scared this is going to be a sort of hanging Chad's American presidential election type of issue, but a relatively simple, I hope, uh, voting process, which I think you've all engaged in uh, when you arrived today, and there will be a chance to vote again when you've been totally persuaded uh, against your initial opinions by this august 
uh, panel, and it's, it involves tearing this thing apart and sticking it in a ballot box, which will race around the audience uh, uh, once we've heard all the contributions and have a little bit of toing and froing uh, on the panel. So let's kick off, and we are going to kick off with the Reverend Richard Coles. Reverend, if you could make your way to the podium. He is the presenter of Radio 4, the Radio 4 show Saturday Live. He's a parish priest and a former member, of course, of the Communards and the only vicar in the UK to have had a number one hit. So that's absolutely super. He was one of the inspirations for the BBC comedy Rev and is the author of Fathomless Riches or How I Went from Pop to Pulpit. Um, Reverend or Richard, if I can call Richard you that, uh, you have between nine and ten minutes, and I'm going to be tapping on this glass if you go over. Okay. You are speaking for the motion, the trouble with this country is the Daily Mail. Thank you very much. Well, that was an easy gig. <laughs> I feel I should be regaling you with tales of my travels in the Hindu Kush, but not this time. Nice venue. Thank you very much, Kamal, for inviting me to be here. And I suppose I have to say that my relationship with the Daily Mail might be characterised as bittersweet. Um, I grew up in the Middle England that the Daily Mail so volubly claims to represent. I'm from Kettering. You don't really get much more Middle England than that. And grew up in the 1970s in a little satellite village uh, called Barton Seagrave near Kettering, where, um, I can tell you, the first newspaper I ever took was indeed the Daily Mail. Uh, my father took the Daily Telegraph, my mother took the Daily Mail, I took Whizzer and Chips and graduated from that to my mother's newspaper instead. I liked the Nigel Dempster column, and I liked the cartoons, which was my, uh, my sort of gateway drug, if you like, into the editorial. So the Daily Mail was a kind of fixture of our family life, and my introduction to uh, the magical world of newspapers and everything that newspapers did. But then things took a different turn. Uh, my father was a shoe manufacturer in, in England in the days when shoe manufacturing... Uh, went on, and that of course collapsed in the 1970s. An economic catastrophe that coincided with my own realization that I was not as other boys, or not as some of the other boys anyway, which had crystallized around uh, a kind of ineradicable attraction to the handsomest boy in the school called Matthew Gamage, whose father read The Guardian. This necessitated various shifts and changes in my life, not least was abandoning the Daily Mail for The Guardian myself as a way of getting close to the obscure object of my desire. Um, <laughs> one thing led to another. My I went to a minor public school and uh, my career there ended under something, well, actually ended under literally under a cloud, caught smoking once too often. Uh, and so uh, adolescence coincided with some dramatic and far-reaching changes in life. The collapse of shoe manufacturing and the future that that would have brought me and the realisation of being gay and the future that that brought me, which basically meant going to London in 1980, where I arrived uh, aged 18, having been knocked off my bicycle with £2,000 in criminal injuries compensation. The first thing I did was get my ears pierced, the second thing was by TCP to deal with the infection that followed. <laughs> but I was very quickly became, rather from, I suppose, a natural constituent of the Daily Mail readership, I became its exact opposite. London in those days was a very polarised place. Margaret Thatcher's government just settling in nicely at Westminster. And on the other side of the Thames, Red Ken, as the Daily Mail used to call him, uh, representing everything that was contrary and different. And into that I was pitched that polarised London, uh, as a young gay man trying to find his way. To be a young gay man in the 1970s, early 80s in England was not the breeze that it might be today. I say a breeze is not always a breeze for many now. But it was quite a tricky thing to be, and one of the reasons for that was the public mood was very much coloured by the kind of images of gay people that the Daily Mail would deal in. So the twilight, miserable world of the homosexual uh, was a familiar trope in journalism. In fact, rather an enduring one in the Daily Mail, I have to say. I'm sure I'm not the only person here who remembers Jan Moyer's column 
uh, discussing the death of Stephen Gately, a young gay man who sang in Boyzone and who died at a tragically early age. Not of the twilight world of the homosexual, as it turned out, but of natural causes. Jan Moyer's piece didn't really make that distinction and appeared before his funeral. And I think it caused the greatest number of complaints ever made as a result of a piece of Daily Mail journalism, 25,000, as I recall. Quite a figure. Um, so that was kind of typical, I suppose, the Daily Mail's attitude to people like me. And, of course, not just people like me. Its attitude towards all sorts of minorities has been robustly confrontational, we might say, uh, from uh, its earliest days. This was, of course, <coughs> the newspaper which published the Zinoviev letter in 1924, I think it was. It was, of course, the newspaper that supported the black shirt. So it did have form, I say, in lining up with people who I was hardly likely to find politically congenial. And I remember it in the 90s very much, as I suspect many people here do, as being a sort of rallying cry, um, a sort of standard for the kind of values which, if I knew anything, I knew I was totally opposed to. Um, added to that, of course, its journalism was robustly um, close to the border of fiction, indeed well over into the border of fiction itself. The Daily Mail has produced countless stories, numberless stories, which have proved on rigorous inspection or even cursory inspection not to be uh, absolutely in line with actuality. You might put it that way, I suppose. Far too many to me. I mean, from the ridiculous about... Do you remember there was a primary school which refused to give children water on the hottest day of the year because it was Ramadan? <laughs> totally made-up story. And, and so many um, stories like that which call into question the veracity and the reliability of its journalism. That perhaps is another issue. I suppose it's kind of full-blooded pursuit of a political, social and cultural agenda that I personally found uncongenial is the reason why the Daily Mail became for me and for many like me um, a sort of symbol of everything that we deplored. And, of course, that feeling was mutual, I think. It wasn't long before the Daily Mail gave me some of, its, um, some of its treatment. I remember being in a gay pop band trying to bring down neoliberal economics with disco. Um, <coughs> to not always draw the most flattering coverage from the Mail's columnists or, indeed, its editorial pages. Uh, also, being, uh, you know, being an out gay person uh, around the time of Clause 28, later Section 28, and being involved in uh, the activism opposed to that, that drew the male's attention too. And I think I felt particularly vulnerable, like most uh, young gay men of that time, uh, around the middle 80s when HIV arrived and had such a huge impact on the lives of people like me, which made us feel particularly vulnerable. And one of the reasons we felt vulnerable was because the animus that that drew from the wider population was an animus that was indeed stoked, I think, by the Daily Mail. Not just the Daily Mail. I think newspapers um, together combined to do that. And that was a particularly uh, uncomfortable feeling. Politically, um, you know, I suppose it's just a truism to observe that dogs chase cats. Of course, the Daily Mail was going to go for people like me. Later on, after my incarnation as a clergyman, which I think rather startled the Daily Mail insofar as it noticed me at all, the Daily Mail rather too readily, in my view, uh, describing itself or thinking of itself as the kind of natural ally of uh, Church of England parsons, or a certain kind of Church of England parson, perhaps. And with its a constant appeal to family values, an appeal which sometimes is difficult to sustain when you look to either side of the text on your screen and notice its fascination with the 17-year-old bodies of the children of celebrities in their bathing costumes. But anyway, I digress. Um, you know what I mean. Um, <clears throat> So uh, I remember I was asked to conduct the funeral for Mo Molan, which I did, which got an unfavourable um, piece in the mail. I think the mail really wanted to attack Mo, but this was not long after, I think it was Linda Lee Potter wrote a very unkind... A uh, piece about Mo in which she described her physically in unflattering terms. I think uh, charitably unaware that Mo had been receiving treatment for the cancer that was later to kill her. Mo was, of course, a very popular person, and so I think criticism that might have been directed to her was deflected to me as this appalling clergyman who betrayed the entire Christian tradition by, uh, by conducting her funeral. That was sort of quite unpleasant. Um, 
Later on, there was uh, the appearance of my memoir. I had this odd, again, the bittersweet experience. Uh, The memoir was extravagantly praised by a book critic on the books page, and then I was absolutely taken apart uh, on a page in the same edition by by somebody else, as representing this deplorable person. Strangely double feeling, actually, because quite often if you're being monstered by the male, and I was never really monstered by the male, not important enough and perhaps not deplorable enough, but there was almost a sort of grudging admiration that I read between the lines at the same time, perhaps of providing easily such reliable copy. I'm not sure about that. I may just be insulating myself against its barbs. And then most recently, I'm involved in... uh, I'm on the board of a housing association, and uh, uh, when the government announced its plans for the Queen's speech to uh, impose right to buy on housing associations. I commented on that, asking by what right the government thought it could dispose of assets which were not in the public, which were not in public ownership. Some of them originated in public ownership, but quite a lot of them, in fact, were bought by housing associations going to the city and raising finance themselves. I thought that that was an interesting argument. The, the male's approach was that I'd accused anyone who bought their council house of being a thief. Uh, this caused rather a great number of messages on my answering machine, most of them anonymous and some of them from my parishioners. I don't particularly mind being monstered by the Daily Mail, but it is inconvenient to have to sort of pick the parish reaction, if you like, to it. But again, so what? Uh, As I said, dogs chase cats. It doesn't really matter. And I might... okay, I might find the Daily Mail objectionable. I might even find it loathsome, but I would absolutely defend its right to be objectionable and loathsome, and I'm glad it's there. I suppose the reason why I'm really speaking for this motion is something slightly different, and that is its claim to speak for Middle England. I don't think it does. I don't think it's the champion of Middle England. I don't think it articulates the fears and hopes of Middle England, as you, Peter, have said it does. I think it stirs the nightmares of Middle England. And I know this because I'm a Middle Englander myself. I'm the vicar of a Middle English parish. I live the life. I walk the walk. I talk the talk. Unlike the Mail's editor, famously who's got his finger on that pulse with his grouse moor and his boys at Eton and his house in Belgravia and his other house in Sussex. Or Lord Harmsworth, He's not, not even in England, let alone Middle England. So how he can claim to speak to it, um, I, I don't really know. I think I do know a bit about Little England. And what I do know is that it's a much kinder, more generous, more tolerant and nicer place than the Middle England stirred up by the Daily Mail and its journalism. I think it stirs it up. I think it, it, it agitates its nightmares. I think it produces a kind of noxious fume of distrust and unkindness and one in which joy and generosity wither and die. And that is why I think the trouble with Britain is indeed the Daily Mail. Thank you very much, Richard. Uh, Fabulous opening. Uh, I I, I obviously mustn't clap because I have no opinions being from the BBC. But uh, next up, next up is uh, one of Britain's finest uh, editors, Roger Alton, former editor of The Independent and The Observer, just for full disclosure, a man I used to work for uh, when I was at The Observer as political editor and uh, head of news. He was also executive editor of The Times and writes a regular sports column for The Spectator. He is now indeed a senior executive at the Daily Mail. Uh, Roger, speaking against the motion, the trouble with this country is the Daily Mail. Uh, thanks so much. I'm about as junior as you can possibly get at the Daily Mail. It's just very, very interesting, if you love newspapers, to be at a place like that, which is so focused, driven, powerful, successful. It's unbelievably interesting if you care about your industry. It's also a very fine newspaper. Um, uh, very, very interesting listen, uh, listening to Richard, who can certainly dish it out in a very nice way, as befits a man who presents on the sweetest-natured programmes on radio. Um, I read the piece you, you, you refer to, Richard, um, in the publication of your book, I, and I, I remember reading it at the time, and I reread it the other day, and I thought, what a really nice... Uh, open, frank guy. You, came, uh, you, you come out of it as. I mean, you might, you might have felt differently. I thought you came out of it absolutely terrifically. Uh, just if I may, for a moment, on the uh, Gately case, that was an opinion piece by uh, uh, one of our columnists, and I think columnists, as Richard said, have a right to say things. There were, I think, two complaints, and then uh, the remaining 24,998 were generated as a sort of 
uh, a Twitter storm. The, 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 um, I doubt whether anybody had actually read it. Um, uh, uh, truly, I mean, is that a last of contender? Anyway, that's what I suspect. Uh, let me just tell you this. I mean, I've always loved papers. Um, when I was a student about 100 years ago, I edited a student paper, and we had a small printing slot at about 2 a.m. on the press of the Swindon Advertiser. Uh, and the roar and the thunder of those presses as they rolled, surprisingly still, even for uh, our piddling little um, paper, Charwell. And it reminds me still of one of the best movies about journalism, Deadline USA. Humphrey Bogart's editor of a crusading paper on the edge of going out of business. They go after organised crime despite threats. Then the best ever last line of the movie, Bo- Bogie's in the press room and he holds up the phone the press is raw, and he says, that's the press, baby, the press. And there's nothing you can do about it, nothing. Now, sadly, I think there are a lot of people who do want to do something about the press, and they want to stop it. Uh, and I'm sure that the Reverend Coles and Zoe Williams are not among their number, but uh, I'd, uh, just to make sure, I would hope that you would oppose this motion, because we need the press. I've sat in this great room many times, seeing some of the people I most admire in the world, in fact, talk about their adventures, their exploits, and their achievements. Um, And it's something of a surprise to be here engaged in rebutting what, in my view, is a slightly bonkers notion. The trouble with Britain is the Daily Mail. The trouble with Britain, in my view, I'm sure it's not shared, but the trouble with Britain is it's not more like the Daily Mail. And (laughs) if, if the intelligence and the industry, the wit, the focus, the humor, the passion... The tolerance, yes, and the drive of the Daily Mail were taken up elsewhere in the country. We would be in a far better state. Um, so, so uh, truly, so if you, if you don't want the country to be in a st- better state, then support the, the motion. Um, the, the Mail, as I say, is a paper I've admired and enjoyed for years. It's a massive success story in the difficult, tight markets, acclaimed by the public, by its readers, and by the industry. It's lavishly garlanded, endlessly being named newspaper of the year, wearingly so if you work for another paper. And the level of talent and ability runs extraordinarily deep. You have to take it from me. I've written a lot of papers. I've been fired from a lot of papers, too. Uh, and it's, it runs deeper than anywhere else I know. There's more women work. More women read it than any other paper in the country. And it has the best female uh, journalists working there um, uh, than anywhere in the country. And also the, the enforcement of journalistic ethics is incredibly high. It's something the editor and the senior staff care about. But it's also a paper with attitude, as it's, and that's what I love about it. It's raucous and it's rowdy and it's rambunctious and all these virtues I value. It's deeply anti-establishment. It speaks up for the common man. There I'd uh, challenge what Richard says. It speaks up for the people who live outside the circle line. And it's wonderfully, re- it's only wonderfully readable and always entertaining. And if you don't like any of that stuff, well, support Richard and Zoe. The papers of journalists are constantly being praised. The other day, the committee of MPs singled out the mail and its investigations editor, Catherine Faulkner, for the highest standards of ethical investigative reporting. This is after uh, their remarkable investigation into charity fundraising methods, i.e. the cold calling and bullying, and the investigation was triggered by the tragic death of a poppy seller in Bristol called Olive Cook. As a result of the mail's work, the law has now been changed, and that um, treatment of the frail and the elderly can't go on. So if you, do, if, if you want it to go on, then support Zoe and Richard. I think it, I, I think it should be stopped. And uh, uh, the other day, we launched a painstaking, meticulous investigation into the NHS's, pardon me, 111 service. It came after a tragic mo- uh, mother came to us. Her young, her young boy had died of sepsis in the wake of uh, the one woman giving uh, completely false and ultimately fatal advice. And now the health service has just admitted that 111 is not fit for purpose when it comes to child sickness. It's a major result. It's a life-saving result. It's accomplished by the mail. So if you don't like the fact that we started the campaign to save lives, support the motion. Um, it's a humane paper. It never forgets that most of us live ordinary lives and it does stories that are of interest to us. Our readers, you know, have their dreams, often unfulfilled, of a good education, a health service they can trust, believe in the family and the country and self-reliance. And they, like the paper, like myself, are profoundly suspicious of the state and the people who think they know best. And those are values that I um, uh, support. We run campaigns on pensions fairness, the dangers of foreign ownership, grapple with tax-avoiding companies. We promoted Asian business through the Asian Business Awards. We reward women who combine motherhood 
uh, uh, with setting up their own businesses with Mumpreneur Awards, trying to say that after a glass of wine. And we champion British manufacturers and we campaign for the breed and their financial affairs. These are important matters. And if you don't care about them, as I say, give Richard and Zoe a whack. It has a huge uh, breadth of coverage, wider than any other paper I've worked for. It does more pro bono work than any other media organisation. We built a school in Sri Lanka after the tsunami, and its readers raised nearly two million quid for the flood victors in December. The families of the Omar victims, a long-running thing, 20 years on, uh, have singled out the paper in gratitude for the money we raised. If you don't like the sound of that, though, people dipping into their pockets to help suffering misfortune, well, you know what's going to come next. Um, uh, it publishes without fear or favour, without proprietorial interference. It's profoundly suspicious of the establishment. Not, many, not necessarily things you could say for all or many of our more liberal media organisations. I've worked for quite a few of them. We campaign remorselessly and successfully, always against injustice. We campaign long and hard for the release of Grant Anamur of Shaka Amir, public account the paper. Gary McKinnon, you may remember him. He's an autistic, autistic guy, geek. Hacked into the Pentagon. The US wanted to extradite him. He served a long time in jail. The paper stopped that and proceedings here were halted. It was a seven-year campaign. We've campaigned on blocking child access to internet pornography, on the uh, blanketing of the planet with plastic bags, rip-off prices for uh, football matches. I mean, don't you care about any of this? I do care about it, and uh, that's why I'm here to oppose this motion. Um, uh, but we don't take up a cause and drop it. We campaign, we campaign incredibly vigorous. Nobody else does anything as vigorous as we do. We campaign for Britain's most neglected community, a thing called Dignity for the Elderly. Um, uh, we've led great popular campaigns for the NSPCC and for Alzheimer's Society, which is an organisation trying to deal with the greatest challenge of the century. I remember it was sneered at, uh, when it campaigned against round-the-clock drinking, when the Labour government introduced round-the-clock drinking and exploded uh, gambling. Now those campaigns actually, I don't want to sound like uh, the Bishop of Dulwich, but those campaigns have proved uh, right, terribly right, impressive. Even Tessa Jail apologised in the Times for the uh, gambling, uh, release of gambling. And again, if you think none of this matters, give Richard your vote. Um, we, this is a country which is in shy and secrecy and, we, and leaps at the chance to curtail the freedom of the press into a whole variety, with a whole variety of ways. But the, the Mail, and other papers, but the Mail particularly, shines a remorseless light into this dark world. And that's why so many people fear it, because it tells the truth. The freedom of the press is under unprecedented attack. There's a lot of things, the uh, uh, various abusive powers uh, that the police are doing, act by the uh, police, the Data Protection Act, which is being used by powerful individuals to suppress suppressed stories, no win, no fear agreements, are punitive and now there's a royal charter hovering in the background threatening damages to force the press into state regulation. We're fighting against that and I hope you would join us in that. Um, there's also been a, a, a fierce and brilliantly handled campaign to prevent the erosion of the freedom of information. Uh, it's one of Tony Blair's great regrets that he introduced freedom of information and now they're trying to road back on it. Uh, the editor's submission to the Independent Commission is a masterpiece of sort of passionate invective about an open society and freedom, the ability to scrutinise our masters. Civil servants don't like FOI, freedom of information, because Whitehall believes it should be exempt from scrutiny. They should remember, though, that with authority comes responsibility, and they should remember who pays their wages. Deep in our society is a presumption of civil servants and politicians that the workings of government should be kept secret. And last year... Uh, we've, and we're continuing to run uh, a, a major investigation on the excessive pen allowances in the public sector, public sector fat cats, absurd salaries being paid to university bosses, police chiefs, local authority officials. There's one NHS chief executive earning one and a quarter million a year despite having a four million pound deficit and failing to meet any of his uh, uh, infection targets. There's a deputy chief constable, a deputy earning uh, seven and uh, 750,000 a year and council executives with £30,000 car, minor council executives £30,000 car allowances so they can, drive their port, uh, they can drive their Porsche to work. If you don't want this to be... OK, if you don't want any of this stuff to be exposed, support the motion. I think it should be. We've, 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 we've exposed, we've revealed a rip-off of rubbish pension annuities, and that led to the chances pension freedoms. We forced banks and building societies to be more transparent, and we revealed how Barclays had missold thousands of pounds uh, of investments, and resulting in 67 million quid's worth of uh, compensation. We pursued people across the world, 
and last week that, uh, we won 130 grand for a woman dying of cancer. So we highlight the hypocrisy, the grand pair of these people who run these companies, the real impact of terrible government policies on people, and we can force these firms to change their ways. I don't think you should want companies to get away with these things, and I actually think you should stop them, and I think you should defeat this motion. So if you want secrecy, if you want to safeguard the rule of the unelected, and if you want power kept from the people, well, support the motion, but I couldn't until, uh, until the day I die. Thanks very much. Thank you, Roger. Thank you, Roger. For the motion next, Zoe Williams, a columnist for The Guardian and The New Statesman, obviously The Guardian right up there in the Daily Mail's list of things it dislikes. Uh, she writes political commentary, interviews and reviews for the motion, The Trouble with This Country is the Daily Mail. Zoe, kick us off. Thank you very much. Um, I never know how long I've been speaking for. I always choose somebody in the front row and look at their watch. This time I've chosen you. So you have to have your watch visible to me, otherwise I will literally go on all night. Um, I, um, I'm probably the only journalist over 40 in the country who still does Vox Pops, where you have to go up to strangers and ask them a question. It's frankly a young person's game, because people will say anything to a young person, whereas when I go up to them, they think I'm from the council, and they're really scared, and it takes a lot of warming them up, and I often have to choose ones who already look quite eccentric, because it will be quite an eccentric act to talk to me. So last week, I went to Uxbridge... I think my stated purpose was to find out whether they thought Boris Johnson was in or out of Europe, since Boris Johnson at that point didn't know, and since half of them didn't know they were in his constituency, and <laughs> since nobody seemed to, really nobody seemed to care, which is something for both campaigns to worry about, but let's, I'm not worried about it. Um, you know, it was, it, it was quite an interesting piece. <laughs> but in the course of which I had quite an interesting conversation with a couple of people. So I went up to this one guy who was dressed in kind of tweeds like Doctor Who. I thought, you'll be good. Whatever you say, you'll be good. And he was Canadian. And I said, what do you think of the EU? And he said, I think immigration is out of control. And I said, oh, right, because you don't sound like you're English. <laughs> and he said, yeah, it's not people like me I'm worried about, right? <laughs> No, of course not. Um, it's these people who come over and they've got no, they don't work, they've got no intention of working, they have a bunch of kids, and they just expect us all to pay for them. And I was like, okay, because if you're really lazy and you never want to work, can I just say the last thing you should do is have a bunch of kids? It's the hardest work known to man. It's harder than any job and more boring. And... One of them is harder than a full-time job. A bunch of them is like doing seven full-time jobs, 24 hours a day. It's just absolutely nightmarish. That's just an aside. The internal logic of this bugbear doesn't work, but you hear it quite a lot. Um, anyway, he said, this is sad, actually. He, so he goes, um, I said, How, why do you think those people exist? Why do you think people exist who don't want to work and never want to work, but will uproot themselves and their families and travel halfway across the world? just to live in a country where they can have a bunch of kids and make somebody else pay for them. I mean, why, 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 why would you think that? And he said, well, you know, it's kind of scaremongering. You don't really know what to believe. The media is so scaremongering. And I was like, well, duh. Maybe you should try not believing it. But I didn't say that because obviously you're box popping, right? You already look like you're from the council. Um, he said, the thing is, I had, I've stopped mocking him and started taking him seriously. You can tell because I've stopped doing a Canadian accent. Um, he said, the thing is, I had lymphoma and I was, and I've been living here for eight years. I was doing a degree in the traditional music of the Oman. I'm actually not joking. This is true. Um, I've been here eight years. I was socially useful. <laughs> um, and, um, and I got 200 quid a week and I had lymphoma. And I was thinking, well, two things. Firstly, this is obviously, you obviously feel really precarious. You're obviously really, it, that obviously really made you feel insecure and threatened and was horrible for you. And it's kind of led you to demonize other people. The second thing is, the Daily Mail would have a field day with you. You know, you come over here studying your liberal nonsense that can't get you a job. 
get your blood cancer and then the NHS has to pay for it and you want money as well, the NHS would actually tear you... I mean, not the NHS, <laughs> the Daily Mail. I'm against the Daily Mail, not the NHS. Um, the Daily Mail would have you for breakfast. They would have you on toast. Obviously, you know, I didn't say any of that. <laughs> I said, that's really sad. Are you better now? And he said, yeah, I am better now because the NHS is great. And I said, yes, it is. Um, anyway... This is a kind of particular bugbear of the Daily Mail's, the kind of the hyper-fertile, congenitally idle immigrant. Um, and the, the sun has its own kind of problems with immigrants. They don't like the ones who shoot you in the head and blow, you, blow themselves up. But only the Daily Mail has this kind of casual demonization of every immigrant you see, you know, everyone you see who looks a bit foreign has d different cultural values to you because they don't believe in work and they don't believe in responsibility and they don't believe in self-care and they don't believe in looking after their own. And it's just a kind of absolutely ceaseless demonization of a group of people and it's an othering of a group of people. And it, it plays particularly well with people who are kind of insecure for reasons maybe of their of their own good health or their economic circumstances. Oh, wow. There's somebody there's some, somebody's talking almost as loud as me. <laughs> but that's fine. Um, now, this is it, it's a kind of... It's what Jean-Paul Sartre always called a classic bad faith argument. It, when you're... Instead of... If, if you kind of are insecure, if you are worried about the future, if you are kind of suffering, and, and this suffering mainly is economic, actually, in the kind of bad faith scheme, instead of considering or thinking deeply about what's made you what's kind of put you in that position and what you are worried about the future and what, which bit of the future is worrying you which bit of your work is worrying you which bit of your wages aren't livable instead of worrying about all of that and kind of trying to correctly identify the source of your precariousness you just project all your anxieties onto this kind of demon other and historically Europeans have always used anti-Semitism the Daily Mail is no stranger to that of course um, but British othering, British kind of bad faith arguments, projecting anxieties onto, other, onto kind of demon others who aren't like us, who are different, actually is quite agile and can attach itself to any foreigner. <laughs> um, and that's, I think, both maximised and kept alive by the Daily Mail. They just absolutely love to make these arguments where some other person isn't like you, they're out to get you, they want to freeload off you, they don't think like you, they, they don't have the same sympathies as you. And it plays particularly well, obviously, with people who are insecure. And what it does is just drives a wedge between them. So there's no, there's no trust, there's no solidarity, and there's no kind of working towards anything better. There's no sense in which you could build something together even across your differences and actually make your future safer together. So it kind of fosters a sense of misery and atomization and um, suspicion, which is, you know, sad. Not, it's not just sad. It's, it prevents meaningful solutions. It makes sure the future will be insecure because you're preventing a meaningful solution and people coming together to talk about meaningful solutions. So it's no joke, you know just because they sometimes are right about some things doesn't mean they're not actually creating a really poisonous atmosphere between the citizens of this country who need to work together. Anyway, so the next guy I spoke to, this is going to sound like I'm making them up, and I'm really, really not. These are all real people. He said, the problem with the EU is these Somalians... I didn't say they're not in the EU. <laughs> Because, as I say, it's a box pop, right? I'm completely neutral. I'm like Kamal in this. Um, these Somalians, they come over here. They've got 1.3 million pound houses. And, they, um, and, they, and they, they, they kind of soak them all up. I can't afford a 1.3 million pound house. I can't... There might be veterans who need that house but are living on the street, which is true. There might be English people who need that house but are living in B&Bs, which is true. Now... The problem with the Canadian having his political mobilisation leached out by the suspicion and greywash of the Daily Mail, it's not the end of the world, right? It's not the end of the world if people aren't on the streets campaigning for better treatment of people with lymphoma for the time that they've got it. So that's a kind of niche issue, and I, couldn't, I, wouldn't, stay, I wouldn't kind of nail my flag to it. This isn't niche at all. The fact that a house 
in London is worth £1.3 million and a family who, has, who needs social housing might well live in that house, which they could never in a million years afford. That isn't a niche issue. That's a very real issue. And there are very good reasons why that gentleman could not get that house, and there are very good reasons why that gentleman could never afford that house on his salary. There are good reasons why he'll never be eligible for social housing. There are good reasons why social housing is kind of collapsing before our eyes. None of these reasons have anything to do with Somalia or Somalians or Somalis, which is, Twitter tells me the correct way to address people from Somalia. None of these... There, there are perfectly good reasons everywhere you look for a situation in which the bottom probably 70% of people living in the southeast can no longer afford their housing um, you know and these people need to start talking to each other and some of them will come to marxist conclusions which i have come to about use value and exchange value and some of them will come to other comp- conclusions about supply and demand and rent capping and everything else there are lots and lots of solutions that we will talk about and discuss we will not talk about and discuss them while we're blaming a family of Somalians for living in a £1.3 million house. We will not ask deep and searching questions about land value while we're trying to paint that as a greedy thing of a Somalian to do, to have the temerity to want to live under a roof in a city where house prices have completely peeled away from any meaningful wage. So... This is, again, sucking the life out of a kind of political mobilisation, and it's, frankly, sucking the life out of any intelligence. You know, you want to live in a mature democracy where people can have intelligent conversations in which the world is standing on its feet and not on its arse. You want to live in a world where people are able to discuss problems in a way that at least resembles reality. And when you have this kind of thumping drumbeat of nonsense, which plays so well with people who feel themselves rightly to have been done over by the society they're living in. One minute. Because I'm not going to get onto my horse fetus in that case. But you're just gonna, I'm just going to have to leave that hanging. Um, you know... When I was young, we used to, the Daily Mail used to pit women against one another. It was like constant, constant working mother, non, non-working mother, barren slag versus home, housefrau. And it was constantly a constant barrage of unpleasantness. And again, it was the same kind of bad faith argument. It was, it was leveraging women's anxieties against one another and, making, and trying to make us hate each other. And it did a really good job until Mumsnet came along actually um, and, and, it, and I spent my whole youth fulminating about it but now I look back it wasn't actually that important because we weren't in this situation we weren't in this kind of very precarious financial times when people felt really really separated and divorced from one another now it really has got serious and so have they and they talk about people on benefits as though they're vermin literally vermin and they talk about people who have who've migrated against in, in, in fear of their, for their lives as though they're just after your, the milk off your doorstep. And it's, it's really sucking the, the, the lifeblood out of the way we are with one another. And it's sucking our ability to build something better. So vote for us, okay? Thank you. Thank you very much, Zoe. Uh, final speaker against the motion, Pete. Uh, thank you, thank you, Zoe. Uh, Peter O'Born, political columnist on the Daily Mail, uh, associate editor of the Spectator, former chief political commentator of the Daily Telegraph. Just for full transparency, I worked with uh, Peter at the uh, Daily Telegraph. Uh, obviously, this is a stinking media elite actually up here, probably much hated <laughs> by the Daily Mail. Um, his books include *The Rise of Political Lying* and *The Triumph of the Political Class*. Against the motion, the trouble with this country is the Daily Mail. Peter. Um, th- thank you very much, Kamal. Um, it's, uh, first of all, to say thank you very much for allowing me to be here because I've, um, I, 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 working for the Daily Mail, you, you, there is a category of person who regards you as beyond the pale. Um, I, I, I used to live in Islington, um, and really people would come up and start denouncing me in the streets. Um, it was quite hard living um, 
Uh, it's full of Guardian people, you know, Alan Rusbridger just down the road and so forth. Uh, and obviously I was in enemy territory, but it was difficult. You, people would look at, pass at you and they knew automatically that because you wrote for the Daily Mail, you were a terrible person, the, the devil incarnate. And so I'm glad, grateful to have a... I know that there are people who aren't going to be fully convinced, but just, have, just make the case that the Daily Mail is a good thing, a moral paper which has made the world a better place, which I'm proud to work for. We've had two uh, versions of critique this evening, um, and I'm just going to divide them into... Basically, I think we've just heard from Zoe Williams a political rant. She doesn't like the politics of the Daily Mail. We understand that. But I didn't, I didn't get a sense that this was a criticism of the Daily Mail. It was just a criticism of a set of policies. Uh, and I'm not going to deal with that very seriously, because I think this is about the Daily Mail, not about a vision of how Britain should be. Uh, if Reverend Coles is correct in his very moving speech that he made, then I would be ashamed to work for the Mail. If it was a, a paper which targeted bigot, was bigoted and targeted gays and other minorities, I would be ashamed. I don't recognise that paper. It's not the paper I work for. But, and I'm basically going to engage more with the Reverend Coles as a result. And I think my main first criticism I'll make to Reverend Coles is that he's a generic criticism of newspapers. When, we, when people like me, Roger, were brought up in the 80s, it wasn't just newspapers, actually. Society at large had a terrible attitude towards gay people. Uh, and uh, it wasn't just the Daily Mail. I'm, I don't know what Daily Mail wrote, but I, I, I know a lot about the sun was terrible. You gays were demonised, uh, and uh, all papers, I suspect, did it. Uh, I don't know, but uh, mercifully that's changed. That no longer happens, um, and there are other minorities who get demonised, uh, Muslims in particular. I don't believe that the Daily Mail is a terrible offender on that front. All papers do it a bit. Some do it, papers do it a lot. And I just... Um, I, 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 Roger said something very wise. The paper is a tolerant paper, and I'm going to come on, come on to that. If you um, attack the Daily Mail, you're attacking its readers. It's, it's got 1.7, 1.6 million people buy it every day. It's read by about 5 or 6 million people every day. If you're going to say the mail's bad, you're attacking those people for buying the mail. And I'm going to say that you mustn't... Well, rather, you're, you, I think you've got to think about why you're doing that. Because for me, they're very good people. They pay their 65p. So he works for a paper which costs £1.80. Um, I believe the Times, the Times costs about the same. The Telegraph, £1.40. The Financial Times, £2.70. They're paying 65p. They're not well-off people. That's the first thing. They tend not to live in central London or university cities. Um, they're struggling. Um, they're middle-class, low-middle-class people. Uh, you know, they have to watch every penny as a whole. Um, and they don't live fashionable lives, uh, and they really experience life at the sharp end. Uh, I, and I, I think that they don't, as a whole, have a voice. Who, I think George Orwell said, you know, the low and middle class is the most despised category of person in Britain. Well, and they don't have a voice. And uh, I think the male gives them that voice. Uh, and if you're saying the mail's a bitter, nasty paper, you're saying they're a bitter, nasty paper. And I think you're making a class statement. I think it's, it's OK to be upper middle class in this country, middle class, like most of the people. OK to be rich. But if you're lower middle class, if you're struggling, no, it's not so OK. Let's just take that issue, which uh, goes on about immigration. It's one of the reasons, things about the Daily Mail, which is so good, is that we write for our readers. Many newspapers... Times, I've watched them all, I know them all. They tend to write for each other. The columnists write columns which express the virtue of the columnist. It shows him a, a civilised version, a citizen of the world uh, who has liberal views, uh, utterly tolerant and marvellous. Of course he's in favour of immigration. He lives in a nice house, he's affluent, he probably went to a public school. Sometimes even she's a she, and very, very occasionally he or she is black. But that is the, uh, the worldview. Now, the Daily Mail is interested, to the exclusion of everything else, in its readers. And that is the one, 
about 6 million people who read it. They don't go to fashionable parties and they experience the realities of immigration. They, they have the pressure on school places. They have the pressure on their wages. They're off, out of a job, in Eastern Europe, European migration has had a real effect on people's jobs. Now, that, if you're the fat cat in London, that's great because you're getting cheaper labour. If you're the CBI boss, that's magnificent. Higher profits. You can drive, the, 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 you can, you can drive down wages. And furthermore, you can be virtuous about it because you're going to get applauded by the Guardian columnist for supporting immigration. But what about the person that Zoe is so sneery about? The person at the sharp end? The person who loses their job or has the job cut or suddenly finds that their school's completely changed its demography and there's loads of different languages and you worry about it and you care about it. You are being sneered at. Now, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, one of, the Daily Mail was pretty well the only organ of opinion in Britain which raised the issue of immigration. I know it did that because I wrote some of those pieces. Now, I... Uh, Personally, I, I'm not affected, except in you know, entirely... I love immigrants, I love immigration. I think it's fantastic. It makes Britain a much, much better place. But it really changes... If you are at the sharp end, are you not allowed to have a voice? The BBC would not go near this issue, because if it did, it would be racist to do so. And so there was a great lacuna of public debate. It was a great... Uh, it was something nobody polite could talk about. The male did. And, of course, therefore, according to the liberal elite, who have such articulate opponents of mine, it's, uh, it's racist. It was never anything of the sort. It gave a voice to people whose lives were severely affected and were disenfranchised by, by papers which were read by prosperous and powerful and rich people. And that, oddly enough, includes The Guardian at £1.80 a shot. I, so we write for... We don't... That's one of the reasons... It's quite frustrating to write for the mail. It's an old thing that... You can't make, you can't make references to clever books you've read because it's written for the readers. You tend not to go on... T you don't very often see male people on TV and Newsnight because it's written for the readers. We don't show off... To each other, we write, for our, we write for our readers. And that's another reason why almost everybody hates the mail. Because we don't... If you, I've been a political journalist for 20 years. And there's an awful wretched collusion between political parties and journalists. The paper which doesn't do that is the Daily Mail. I remember once, actually, it was when I was on the Evening Standard, and Paul Dacre, the editor of the Mail was that, I couldn't believe it, we were, running, we were running some health story causing problems to the government and Willie Waldegrave, the health secretary at the time, tried to ring up Dacre, five, five times he rang up Dacre, he would not budge off the back bench where he was editing the paper, he wouldn't speak to the health secretary because he's interested in his readers, stories which affect the lives of their readers. He wasn't up to ingratiating... There's one ghastly exception. He got much too close to Gordon Brown. I, I couldn't understand what was going on. But basically, the male is anti-establishment because it stands up for unfashionable people. That makes it anti-the Tory party, by the way. The big it, it, it's, I'm allowed... By the way, I do. I criticise George Osborne, particularly over some of the issues which Joe Williams raised. Housing, you know, the, the favouring of rich people. House crime, very, very important issues. But we speak up for our readers on those issues because they affected more than anybody else. We speak up on family values. Yes, we do. We, we believe, we always have, we've always said it, we've been sneered at it, that two-parent families work really well. And actually, a lot of research has vindicated that. We believe there have been great problems with the welfare state, that it has carried a, encouraged a cultural of, of dependency across generations. And actually what we believe is that that minimises the life chances. It makes people dependent. We want to give pe people to live really f fulfilling lives. We're not against the welfare state, by the way, and that would be a misrepresentation. One minute, Peter. Yeah. Um, 
And we've done, done, and I'll just tell one final story. Because we have that power, because we're so independent, we run these campaigns. Gary McKinnon, I brought that campaign in to the Daily Mail. I was rung up by Claire Algar at Reprieve. She told me about Gary McKinnon. I heard it. I, I rang up, spoke to the editor. I sent him a one-page note of all the big points. He's, I got a call back half an hour later. We're going to campaign on this. We ran a cap- Six days later, the campaign started. You'd never seen anything like it. We, we stopped that boy going to the United States. One of the proudest... I feel really proud of that, and I can give you loads and loads of other examples. And so don't tell me it. I'm, I'm just trying to help tell you why I'm proud to write for the Daily Mail, and I don't recognise the distortion you've been given by two people who claim to be factually accurate. Reverend Coles claims to be factually accurate. No. It's a good paper. Thank you very much, Peter. Um, before we come to... Uh, before we come to this, your, this magnificent audience uh, here, we're going to have just one chance, uh, Richard, to make one point or ask one question of your opponents on this side, uh, and I'll ask the same from here. So, Richard, one point that you want to rebut, just one, because time is tight, about either from what Peter said or what Roger said uh, on their points against the motion. I don't think that to speak in favour of this motion is to attack the readers of the Daily Mail. I think the Daily Mail attacks the readers of the Daily Mail. I have the greatest respect for the people you described, Peter. They're my parishioners. I know them. I love them. It's where I come from. I share that life. I know, what it's, I know what, how those virtues work. I know how they organise and marshal the everyday goodness that gives a heartbeat and a pulse and a life to a community. Uh, and I support that, and I think that's a terrific thing. Um, uh, just a very uh, second point is you talk about the Daily Mail's political independence. Wasn't David English knighted by Margaret Thatcher? Wasn't the Daily Mail for 20 years a staunch supporter of the Conservative Party? I'm glad it's not anymore if it isn't, but I'm not sure that that's an entirely okay. one argument. Roger, do you want to make one point? I saw you writing furiously during both Richard and Zoe's um, uh, 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 presentations. Uh, mostly swear words, actually. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, do you want to make one quick rebuttal point about what you've heard from your two opponents? Um, again, this sort of... Idea, there seem to be two strands, Peter pointed out. One saying the paper is homophobic or implying it's homophobic. The other saying uh, that the paper's anti, uh, anti, if you like, foreigners. It's, there's so not the case. The paper is the most open discussion anywhere that I've ever seen. The other day in conference, Peter Tashel, for example, has written loads of times in the paper. The other day in conference, Paul Dacre said, Peter Tashel is a great man. I mean, it, it's a very, very tolerant organisation, I promise you. What's wrong with that? Zoe. Yep. I'm, amazed. Yep. I'm amazed. Zoe, Zoe, this is, first, you've coloured you've coloured the, the Daily Mail uh, wrongly. What, what both my opponents seem to have misunderstood me in about a hundred different ways. I can only assume it's because I've got a high-pitched voice or something. Um, I wasn't saying that it's the paper that's anti-foreigners, even though it is, and I wasn't objecting to a bunch of for a bunch of policies, even though I do object to a lot of policies. I was objecting to a caricature, set of caricatures which actually doesn't limit itself to foreigners or immigrants or disabled people or benefits claimants or anything else. It's a set of caricatures that attaches itself to any weak spot that they think they can give a good kicking to. I think it's a paper of bullies. Now, you know, if you think that's me objecting to conservative policies, you should hear me on conservative policies. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the other, just one tiny yeah. weenie point... Okay, yeah, they have done good campaigns. The Stephen Lawrence campaign was a good campaign. It was a meaningful and seismic campaign. We all do good campaigns. The the argument put up with any of the bile they spew because sometimes they do a good thing, I think is a poor argument. Thank you, Zoe. Peter, one point point you'd like to make in in rebuttal, not not repeating your argument, in rebuttal to what you heard. Uh, uh, The the Reverend Coles... um, who, who, who accused his parishioners of false <coughs> conscious, Marxian false consciousness um, just now. Um, <laughs> I just want to pick him up on, a, uh, p- on the point of David English, um, partly to say that, um, of course, it's not unknown for Labour to give uh, knighthoods, but mainly to say, actually, that David, Eng- David English received a posthumous peerage, I'm almost certain I'm right, you did. Uh, a- as a gift from new Labour. So, uh, you'll get your facts. 
you, you were going on about Daily Mail being inaccurate. Um, I, can I just urge you occasionally to think, get your own facts? Uh, now, I have the first results uh, as you walked in uh, about uh, this debate, uh, which I'm going to read out now. So, for the motion, the trouble with this country is the Daily Mail, 40%. Against 27%. Undecided, 33%. The final result is 51, 51% for the motion, 48% against. <laughs> Unlucky chaps, but you lose. The swing, yeah, the swing was 5%. The swing was 5% to my left, not politically, but just uh, geographically. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think so, they won. I think that's their victory. <laughs> so, on the left, although the motion was carried, the swing went to the left. Does that make yeah, them a winner of the debate? I think that makes yeah. them a winner. Yeah. Yeah. So, everyone, everyone is a winner, okay. which is a lovely way to finish. <laughs> Thank you very, very much to Peter O'Bourne, Roger Olson, Zoe Williams and Richard Coles. Thank you to you for coming as well. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.